Hey guys, welcome back again. Today's episode is not going to be directly related to churning, but I think it does have a lot of churning related applications. And the premise is going to be on lending or floating money and the risks associated with that. So before I get started, I want to say again, the meetup is happening. It's going to be on March 2nd. I will be sending out a reminder email a few days before, so looking forward to it. So yeah, as I'm getting into the topic for today's episode, I'm going to be talking about risk and losing money so it might sound a little bit dark so yeah I guess a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is how to know when you're getting free rolled and what the implications are of that and just for the people who don't know a free roll is basically a risk-free bet I think I talked about this in a previous episode but it would be like if you bet on a coin toss and if it's heads you win five dollars and if it's tails then and you don't lose anything. So what it means to be getting free rolled is that you're on the other side of that. So if it's tails, you don't lose any money, but if it's heads, then you have to pay out that $5. So I'll get into the churning related examples of this and sort of how to manage it later in the episode, but I first wanted to talk about the FTX collapse and all of the crypto lending platforms because those were pretty big back in like 2022 and then they all went bankrupt. And just now we're sort of starting to see what's happening with their bankruptcy proceedings and how much their customers are going to be paid out. So as things are finally getting settled, I think it's important to look back and reflect on what happened and what we can learn from it. So let's start from the beginning and talk about what these crypto lending platforms were doing. I think most people are familiar with the names, but these were companies like BlockFi, Gemini, and Celsius, and Voyager. And how their business model worked was that they had two different types of customers. They had the lenders and they had the borrowers. So the lenders would deposit their US dollars onto the platform. Technically, it was US dollar coin or some US dollar equivalent, but in reality, it was US dollars. And as payment for depositing their money or investing their money into the platform, they would be receiving an interest payment of around 8 to 10% annualized. And then the borrowers would be posting their crypto onto the platform as collateral and then borrowing those US dollars. And then the platform would sort of serve as the bank and maybe collect some spread on the interest rate. So if the borrowers were paying 12% and the lenders were collecting 10%, then the platform would be making 2%. So this is not a new business model. This is how most banks operate. And there's a very similar concept with margin trading at a brokerage where you can post your stocks as collateral and then borrow money off of that. And the theory is that by posting this collateral, the bank will always be safe because if you can't pay back the loan, then they can just sell the asset whether that's the stocks or the crypto, or in the case of a mortgage, that would be a house. And in the case of crypto lending or margin lending, if the value of the collateral goes down below what is called the maintenance requirement, then the borrower will either need to post more collateral or the bank will liquidate the asset. And when this happens, this is called a margin call. And this cannot happen on a mortgage, by the way. 
which is why I think mortgages are great. But yeah, so what happens if there's a bank run and all these customers want to withdraw their money, but the banks have all the money tied up in people's mortgages or whatever? So in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of their money was tied up in long-term treasury bonds, which as the interest rate goes up, the liquidity value of those goes down. So in order to sell off these assets to pay the customers that are all trying to withdraw their money, they would be taking significant losses and just wouldn't be able to pay everyone. So when something like this happens, the Federal Reserve can step in and provide that liquidity that the bank needs in order to make sure that all the customers' deposits are covered. And in the case that the deposits are not covered by liquidating the bonds or whatever, then there's FDIC insurance, which I think everyone knows about, where basically the government will cover up to $250,000 per account. And I think if it's a joint account, then it's 500 k I don't know, I don't really have enough money in a deposit account to be thinking about that. But yeah, so the bottom line is that for real banks, the Federal Reserve has a money printer to provide the liquidity that the bank needs. Whereas for crypto and these crypto lending platforms, you cannot just go out and mint more Bitcoin to provide that kind of liquidity if the bank fails. With crypto, there is no government, there is no central bank, there is no money printer, there's only the blockchain, which is supposed to be decentralized. And I mean, that's the whole point of crypto, is that no one entity can control the supply. So that's the first problem with crypto lending. And then the second problem is that a lot of these coins are just not really that liquid. So Bitcoin and Ethereum have a decent amount of liquidity. But a lot of these smaller coins, they could just crash instantly and it may not be possible for the crypto lending platform to liquidate the collateral or an amount of money that is greater than the loan that that customer was borrowing. So it might be reasonable to assume that these platforms might only take the larger coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum as collateral because those will be a lot easier to liquidate. Of course, it is still possible for a crash to happen, but as long as the maintenance requirements are maintained at a reasonable threshold, things should be fine. And in the one or two off cases where a customer can't repay their loan and their collateral can't be liquidated enough to cover it, the platform should be able to absorb the loss as long as they have enough customers and they're sort of well diversified in that sense. So yeah, these were the thoughts that were going through my head back in 2021 or whenever it was. And for some reason, I had it in my head that it was only Bitcoin and Ethereum that could be posted as collateral. And I was looking at some of these websites and they were saying how the maintenance margin requirement was a maximum of 50%. So that means if you deposit $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, you can only borrow up to $500. And so this is kind of how I saw it. I thought it was like something for people who maybe got into Bitcoin really early. So they have a really low cost basis and they don't want to sell any of their coins and have to pay capital gains tax. But then at the same time, they want some access to that money. Or maybe they just need some short term liquidity, like for an emergency or something. 
So this is where I thought that money was coming from to pay that 8 to 10% interest rate. And so I actually did deposit a small amount of money into BlockFi because I thought, well, it seems like a decent investment. You know, it's not risk-free. Like I know there are risks, but based on what I was thinking at the time, it didn't seem like the risks were that high and it seemed worth it for the returns that I was getting. And so, yeah, as a lot of you know, this was not what was happening. It was not like retail borrowers that were borrowing the money and paying that interest rate. It was a bunch of larger hedge funds, or in some cases, the company just trying to invest that money themselves in a lot of risky investments, sometimes with collateral, sometimes with a very illiquid collateral, sometimes with no collateral at all. So in the case of BlockFi, they lent out the majority of their money to Alameda and FTX, who had posted FTT as collateral. In the case of Voyager and Genesis, they had lent most of their money to Three Arrows Capital. And I could be wrong, but I don't think there was any collateral for those loans. So they were just completely unsecured. And then for Celsius, I think it was just the company themselves that invested in a bunch of risky investments, which all sort of collapsed at the same time when the crypto market crashed. And yeah, so for the case of BlockFi and Alameda FTX, as soon as FTX declared bankruptcy or said that they're halting customer withdrawals, the FTT token just went to zero instantly. And then for the loans to Three Arrows Capital, those all went into default when Three Arrows Capital went bankrupt when they got tied up in the whole Terra Luna disaster. So yeah, for all of these crypto lending platforms, if you were lending money out or that 8 to 10% interest rate, you were basically free rolling these hedge funds. Well, I guess it's not a complete free roll because you are making some money. But yeah, if the hedge funds strike it rich with some really risky crypto investment they get to keep all of that profit and pay you your eight to ten percent annually but then if all of their investments just go to zero and they default on their loans then you lose and i talked about this in a different episode but how the math works out is that in this kind of free roll situation the riskier the investment is the higher ev it is for them and yeah if you're given money that's an unsecured loan that you don't have to pay back if you lose it why wouldn't you just take that money to the roulette wheel and actually if you think about celsius and three arrows capital when three arrows capital was just borrowing money and putting that into luna which if you didn't know luna was like this crypto thing that was paying a 20 percent return and then eventually it just all collapsed because as you might expect a 20 percent return is not sustainable but yeah i mean it was a pretty big deal at its peak It had a market cap of like $40 billion. That's billion, like with a B. So I'm just going to make up some numbers here. But suppose that Three Arrows Capital is making a 20% interest rate on their Terra Luna investment. And then they're paying a 15% interest rate to Voyager. And then Voyager turns around and pays a 10% interest rate to their customers. So really what's happening here is the customers are taking on 100% of the risk of the Terra Luna scheme, but they only get 50% of the profits. So if I was a customer and I knew what was happening here, 
I would never take that deal because I could just invest in Luna myself and take all of that 20% return and eliminate the middleman. And this was the whole problem with the whole thing in that none of these crypto lending platforms shared any details about their balance sheets. And I think part of this was by design because they don't want like their customers to get worried and trigger a bank run. But at the same time, if any customer knew what was actually going on, then they wouldn't invest in their platform to begin with. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of these executives from these companies are being investigated by the SEC and various other government entities. I don't really know what the status is of whether or not those people are going to jail because there was a lot of lying and misleading customers going on. One thing was Voyager telling their customers that their deposits were FDIC insured, which I think might have just been a straight up lie. But unless you're Bernie Madoff or Sam Bakeman fried you're probably not going to be going to jail for any kind of fraud or other financial crime. So yeah, fast forward to today and a lot of these companies are finally starting to pay out their customers for whatever's left in their company's estate. I think BlockFi is going to pay about 40% to their customers and Celsius and Voyager are about the same. I think Celsius is closer to like 60 or 70%. It also depends on whether you were lending just US dollars or if you were lending crypto. Because if you had lent out crypto and the company filed for bankruptcy, the price of the crypto in US dollars is locked in the minute that company files for bankruptcy. So for FTX, for example, if you had one Bitcoin deposited on their exchange, you do not give back one Bitcoin. It's actually called a claim and your claim is based on the value of that crypto when the company filed for bankruptcy. And the money that you get back is capped at 100% of that claim. So when FTX filed for bankruptcy, Bitcoin was worth like 20K and now it's worth like 50K. So FTX is actually advertising that customers are getting paid out 100% of their deposits. And what they really mean is they're getting paid out the cash value of their deposits at the time that they filed for bankruptcy. When the filing of their bankruptcy had decreased the value of the coin. So I'm not sure if that's really fair because we also have to think like if the price of Bitcoin had gone down, it could have gone to zero. And if your claim was one Bitcoin and Bitcoin was worth 20K, you could have a claim worth 20K, but you wouldn't get anything because FTX just wouldn't have any money. So I don't know, I guess things are a little weird in that sense. And yeah, so you might also be thinking like, what are the tax implications if you lost a lot of money from these platforms? And I did some research on this and there is a tax rule called a Ponzi loss. And this was enacted in 2009 around the Bernie Madoff stuff. And what it is, is it allows you to take an itemized deduction on your taxes if you had fallen victim to a Ponzi scheme. So for this kind of thing, you definitely want to talk to a tax professional about it, but it would be definitely something to look into if you had a significant loss on one of these platforms. But the catch is that if you wanted to declare a Ponzi loss, it has to be done in the tax year that the Ponzi was declared. 
So for all of these companies, that would be 2023. I mean, that is when, you know, all these platforms were investigated for fraud and it was determined that there was criminal fraud involved. So I guess the IRS definition of a Ponzi is more related to the fraud and not necessarily whether or not there was an actual Ponzi, because in the case of all these crypto platforms, there wasn't really a Ponzi that was just collecting all the money. It was more that everyone lost. But yeah, if you did lose some money, you can also take like a capital loss. That would start to be realized in the years when you had started to get the disbursements from the bankruptcy claim. But if you had a significant amount of money, you should definitely start talking to a tax professional because yeah, the deadline for taxes is April 15th. And for the Ponzi loss, you would have to take that in the tax year that there was the Ponzi. So yeah, that's the whole story on what happened to all these crypto lending platforms. It's still not quite complete. Like people haven't really gotten their disbursements yet, but I think it looks like it's going to start happening in the next few months. And then they're talking about doing a second round of disbursements in 2025, just to see if they can recover any more money from FTX and Three Arrows Capital and stuff like that. They probably won't, but it could happen. And after that, it will finally become closed. No more money will come out. What's done is done. So yeah, that's the full story. And like I said, I did have a small amount of money that I lost from this, but I think it was a pretty good life lesson. And so I wanted to talk about the learnings that I had from this and how we can apply those to stuff like churning and just other parts of life in general. So the first thing is, of course, to try to do more research before you invest in anything. So like I said, I had the sort of naive assumption that the money that I had lent out was sort of to like other retail customers that just wanted to post their Bitcoin or whatever as collateral for short-term liquidity. And the other thing to understand is that the market cap of a coin does not mean that it has that much liquidity. So like in the case of FTX, they had like however many billions of dollars worth of FTT coin as sort of the market rate for the FTT if you were to go and sell like one FTT on an exchange. But if if you wanted to sell like billions of dollars worth of it, there's just nowhere near enough volume for you to be able to sell all of those coins at that price. So like when BlockFi announced that they were getting bailed out by FTX, what actually happened was that FTX had posted a bunch of FTT and not real money. And like I said before, once FTX went bankrupt, the value of the FTT coin just went to zero. So BlockFi didn't actually get any money out of that to be able to pay their customers. So yeah, I would say just doing more research would be the first thing. Even though like the company's financials were not made public, I think at the time there was enough information out there to know what was going on. So I'll admit that I did not do enough research for that. And I guess the second thing is that when anyone is promising you an interest rate that is a lot higher than what the market rate is, 
you should just be really wary of that. And if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. I did know that there were risks going into this, but I think I did underestimate them for sure. I don't think anyone really thought it was just 10% risk-free. But you don't really know what the risk is because you don't know where the money's going. And so you also don't know like if that risk is worth it. So yeah, just watch out for things that are too good to be true. And it's also good to think about like how can this interest rate be sustainable? And so like I said, I did have an idea of how I thought that it was being sustainable and sort of ways that it could be possible but those just weren't really what was going on. It is kind of hard to say, like, we watch out for things that are too good to be true, because a lot of churning does sound too good to be true. Like, the sign-up bonuses on some of these credit cards are just ridiculous, especially, like, the Chase Inc. card, where you get 90,000 points plus the 40,000-point referral, all for spending $6,000. So you can make over $1,500 by signing up for one credit card. And yeah, I mean, that is sustained by people paying a 30% interest rate and by there being a 2 to 3% transaction fee that's pay being paid by the merchant on every credit card transaction. And so the next thing is just to know when you're getting free rolled. And this can apply to a lot of different things. I think one of the main things is buying groups, and especially these ones that have payout timeframes of two weeks or more. And what you're doing there is you're basically giving them an unsecured loan. And if a buying group goes bankrupt, you're going to be the one that's holding the bag. So when you're sort of calculating that interest rate or whatever is the cost of that longer payout timeframe, you should not be using the risk-free rate of 5%. It should be closer to whatever the market rate is for an unsecured loan. And you also want to think about things in terms of your bankroll. Because you really, really want to avoid being put into credit card debt and having to pay that 30% interest rate. So if you're sending in 50k worth of stuff to a buying group, you want to make sure that you have 50k somewhere that you can liquidate in the case of them not paying out. And always be thinking about the concept of risk of ruin. So, I mean, obviously it's plus EV to be sending stuff to buying groups because their likelihood of going under is, I would say, pretty low. But you don't want like one buying group going under to cause you to go bankrupt. So I know a lot of churning is related to moving a bunch of money around between bank accounts and random fintech platforms. But I would say for most of those, there's not really that much risk because there's always FDIC insurance. And I would say that for me, I think about the worst case scenario as having my money being tied up for a few months. At least for like if I'm doing a credit card bank funding or something like that. But yeah, for the buying groups, you know, a lot of people say don't float more than you're willing to lose. And I'm not sure if I really like that phrase because of course I don't want to be losing any money. And when you say don't risk more than you're willing to lose, that doesn't mean just make a completely irresponsible investment with that money that you could afford to lose. 
So I think for me, the amount that I'm willing to float for a buying group would be about six months of profit that I can make from all of my training activities. So it would really suck for it to happen. And, you know, I'm hoping that it's a really small percentage that it will happen. But if it does happen, yeah, it would suck. But it would take, you know, about six months for me to rebuild from that. And for me, you know, I consider each buying group as sort of a separate independent entity. There probably is some correlation between different buying groups going under because a lot of the stuff goes to the same place. But I think for me, if I have money on Buy For Me Retail and buyinggroup.com, well, actually, as I think about it, Buy For Me Retail just pays out instantly. So this isn't really a thing for them. But if it was buyinggroup.com and max out deals, I would kind of treat those as separate independent risks. Of course, this is debatable, but that's just how I think about it. So yeah, six months of profit is about where I'm at with these. And I would say also any of those fintech apps that do not have FDIC insurance. There is a risk there as well, but it is of course very small. But the thing is really with any business, there is going to be some risk of people not paying you or some vendor screwing something up. And if the business just doesn't pay you and goes bankrupt, then you lose. And that's just how it is. Like, this is how businesses work. And it's the same thing for, like, personal matters as well. Like, if you sue someone and they don't have the money, then they just can't pay you and you don't get anything. So a lot of people are used to, like, being a consumer and, yeah, I just pay with my credit card and if I don't get it what I want, then I can just do a chargeback. And it doesn't always work this way in the business world. And especially when you're working with companies that are overseas, like a lot of these buying groups are, it can be even harder to go after people that don't pay you. So there is a level of trust involved and there are risks, but I mean, it's okay that there are some risks, but you just have to account for that and make sure that your margins are high enough and that you have enough capital to sustain that kind of loss. So with buying groups, you know, I just had like one of those decisions where I had a bunch of Apple Vision Pros and both max out deals and buyinggroup.com stopped taking them on the same day. So my only option left was buy for me retail. And like I've said before, and I think it really needs to be repeated, is that buy for me retail does not reimburse you for lost packages whereas buyinggroup.com and max out deals do. So you just need to be very careful with them and make sure that your margins are high enough to be worth it. And yeah, it was a pretty big risk for me because if UPS loses the package or it gets stolen from buy for me retail's doorstep, I'm just out that money. You might be thinking, well, yeah, you could buy insurance, but again, you also have to trust that the insurance will actually pay out if a package is lost. And first of all, you would have to prove that it was lost in transit and lost after delivery. I've never personally gone through that process, so maybe I can actually speak to that. But I'm just not very confident that I would be able to get that money back even if I did have insurance. And I don't think insurance would even cover a package with this high of a value. And I did look into it and it seemed kind of expensive. It was more than 1%. 
And I'm pretty sure, well, based on my data, the likelihood of a package getting lost is less than 1%. It's probably closer to 0.1%. At this point, I have more than 1,000 packages of data to back up that claim. So yeah, I'll talk about this more in the monthly recap for February. But yeah, I mean, it was a risk. Thankfully, it worked out for me this time. It will not work out 100% of the time, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. And that sort of brings me to the last thing that is journey related that I wanted to talk about for this. And that is the fitness club. And I remember back like many months ago, I posted on Reddit that I was thinking about doing an episode on that. I don't post on Reddit anymore, but when I did post that, I got a bunch of downvotes and a lot of people DMing me not to talk about it. So I actually don't really have the full story on what happened and I don't really have the full details. But my understanding was that it was this club where you could charge your credit card for a 1% fee to this group and then they would just pay you out after, I don't know, a few weeks or something like that. And so what these people were doing was giving a loan to this group, basically. And the group was investing in various risky investments, like some sort of crypto stuff. Again, I don't know the whole details. And then when the crypto market crashed, they also went under and they just couldn't pay people back. And so, yeah, I mean, this might sound very familiar with what I was talking about before with the whole crypto lending thing and that you're basically giving them a free roll with, the, with your money. But what actually happened is all these people that lost money or they weren't able to get paid out, they all, of course, tried to do chargebacks with their credit cards. And based on sort of the bits and pieces and rumors that I've seen is that most of the people were successful in getting their money back with the chargebacks. These did result in a lot of shutdowns with like Chase. But yeah, so it turns out that the real people that were free rolling this whole thing were the banks, which I mean, that is a thing. I mean, banks, when they charge that 30% interest rate on credit cards, they know that there's going to be a percentage of default and so they can account for that. I don't really know the legality of what these people were doing because I don't have all the details and that's kind of the main reason why they don't want to talk about it because it probably is illegal. But I actually learned like a few weeks after I posted that comment on Reddit that these people just started a new club and are doing it again. So I think that might be the main reason why I got all of those messages to not talk about it. And yeah, of course, I mean, these people were able to get away with it the first time by getting their money back with the chargebacks that they're doing it again. And this was actually like several months ago that I saw a random comment that was saying that. So I have no idea if it's still going on. I'm sure a lot less people are doing it after the first collapse, and especially with the rise of PayPal bill pay over the past year. I think a lot of people that may have been doing that in the past had focused a lot of their volume towards that. But now that PayPal bill pay is mostly dead, I don't know, we might see another one of these groups popping up or more people going towards those groups. So that's all I'm going to say about the fitness clubs. If you do have any information or if you want to correct me on anything that I said, um, feel free to DM me. I mean, I am curious what is going on. 
But that's all I'm going to talk about on the podcast. Even though I think that people should be aware of what's going on just so that they don't fall a victim of it. At the same time, I know it is a sensitive subject and I don't want people to get all riled up. I think for most people, I mean, if you are involved in this, you probably do know like the legal and financial risks that you're taking. So yeah, I probably won't be talking about that anymore, but I did think it was relevant like for the topic of this episode. So yeah, if you made it this far, I hope you enjoyed this kind of off-topic episode. And one other thing is that I'm going to make a public link for the Slack again. One of the main reasons that I wanted to be a little bit more private was because a lot of the bill pay stuff was pretty sensitive. But now that that's mostly dead, I think it's probably fine to open it up. I think I want to be a little bit more inclusive. So if you're not in there yet, feel free to hop in there. I'm pretty happy with how the Slack has been going so far. A lot of good discussions happening and information being shared. So you can find a link to the Slack in the show notes or on the website at churninglife.com. Hope to see you in there if you're not already. That's all I got for today. Thanks for listening and until next time. 